you would again uh, take out your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 34. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, again this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who, who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this ministry of John the Baptist who points us to Jesus, our Savior. We pray, Father, that as we hear this message, that as we consider your word, that we would come to greater, deeper understandings of your gospel, knowing Christ. Pray that you would be with this, your servant. Pray that my voice would hold out. Pray that you would uh, work mightily this morning. That we would grow in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the prologue, uh, John the Evangelist has presented to us the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the eternal word who brings life and light. And so now the evangelist turns our attention to the identity of someone else, of John the Baptist. Now when we speak of, about identity um, in our postmodern age, that word identity takes on certain connotations and baggage which it previously did not have. We find ourselves in a time which is obsessed with identity. People are on a quest to discover themselves, to discover their true identity, whatever that may be. They're trying to find meaning in life, significance. Many even believe you can choose your own identity. You could be whatever you want to be. And so it should be understood right from the beginning that when, we, when it comes to identity, who you are, who I am, we're not speaking in terms of our postmodern world. Because your identity has already been determined by your Creator and God. God is who determines who you are. Your purpose, put so, put, put so well by the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. And so when men came to John the Baptist, seeking to determine who he was, he was not in the least inclined to make himself out to be anyone else other than who he really was. In fact, he may not have even fully understood God's purpose for him. But what he did understand, as the last of those serving as an Old Testament prophet, was that one greater than himself had come. The long-anticipated and promised Messiah was coming and was now among them. He whose sandal he was not even worthy to untie. The one had come, this promised one had come. So John understood his place. John was a small man serving a big God. And this humility, even as a man who had a great following, John had drawn many, uh, the attention of many people who were Crowds were coming to him. This this had even drawn the attention of, of the Jerusalem leadership. His humility in the face of all of that ought to be instructive for us. Because Christ is King and Lord. So who are you? John testifies to these things too. And so as we jump into our text today, um, in John's Gospel, uh, like the synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's Gospel presents us the ministry of John the Baptist before finally turning his attention fully to Jesus. The purpose of John's ministry was to focus the people's attention on the true light. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. Now, as already noted, John's ministry had begun to attract uh, a number of followers. Crowds were beginning to come to him. 
uh, to the place where he was ministering uh, near the Jordan, at the Jordan River. They were hearing his teaching. They were receiving his baptism. These crowds, uh, though, attracted also the attention of the leadership of Jerusalem. They're concerned about these large amounts of people following after a man such as this. And so some of the priests and the Levites were sent to John to inquire into who he was and what claims he was making about himself. Now the evangelist says that these priests and Levites were sent by the Jews from Jerusalem. This probably, again, indicates the Jewish leadership, notably the Sanhedrin. These were representatives they were sent to John. They wanted to know the purpose of John's ministry and why he was attracting all of these crowds. Now, the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish council in Jerusalem, largely was controlled by the high priestly family. And many of them, if not most, were actually the party of the Sadducees. Now, verse 24 indicates to us that at least some of the envoys who come to John were also of the Pharisees. But since the high priestly family controlled most of the Sanhedrin, it makes sense that it was priests and Levites who had come to John. Now, a little background, uh, first of all, on San, the, San, the Sanhedrin or uh, these various classes we just mentioned, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, they were something of the liberal main line of their day. They enjoyed power, enjoyed prestige of their place, but they didn't really believe the Scriptures. They didn't care much for the things of the Lord. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were much more zealous for truth. They were concerned to protect the people against false teachers. And the, there's hints of this in the questions which they ask John uh, later on. And the Apostle Paul is an example of one who had been a Pharisee. And so with that as a backdrop, we should understand that the inquiry into John's ministry was more than just idle curiosity. Oh, here's an interesting fellow. Let's find out about him. That, that's not what they're concerned about. John, like Jesus later, perhaps present something of a threat to the power structures of the day among the, the Sanhedrin. And for the Pharisees, it was po- a possible threat to the Scriptures and to their traditions, but for the, for the Sadducees, John may present a threat to their very way of life. And so when these inquisitors come, they come seeking to understand John's claims. Is he another... Uh, another one in a long line of, of messianic claimants. Is he just another one who's going to rise up a rebellion against uh, the nation? In the first century, there was no uniform expectation of a single eschatological figure. Not, not, there wasn't an agreement on what this Messiah would look like. Most, among those who actually expected a Messiah, expected him to come in some form, but it was not well understood how he would come. This is significant because John is not only teaching, but he's also baptizing, which was an eschatological sign. 
crowds were following John. And so it's no wonder. It's no wonder that John's ministry attracted some attention from the leaders in Jerusalem. Perhaps they're curious, but most likely they're very concerned about who this man is out in the wilderness by the Jordan River, baptizing. Is this another false Messiah who will lead people astray? Is this another, uh, you know, one who's going to lead a rebellion? And of course the concern there is, you know, they're under, they're, they're under Roman rule. Will the Romans have to come in and quash another rebellion and create more problems for them? So you can see uh, why, why they would be so curious about who John is. And so they ask him, who are you? And look at his response, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now John gets right to the point. And this is probably because the envoys asked him plainly, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Is that who you, is that who you are saying you are? The leadership of Jerusalem in the first century has seen many, many messiahs, quote-unquote messiahs, come and go over the years. A, a false Christ could gather up a rebellion and create a threat for them with Roman rule. First century Judea was ripe, was ripe with messianic expectations. People were looking for the Davidic or kingly messiah. They were looking for someone who might overthrow the Romans. There were others, namely among the Qumran, who, who were operating not far from John the Baptist. They expected a priestly messiah. There were others who expected a great prophet like Moses to arise. These are all messianic promises from Scripture. And so it's no wonder that when the inquisitors come and ask if he is the Christ, they're asking, is this who you're claiming to be? Are you, are you another one of these you know, uh, messiahs or so-called messiahs? But John insists, John insists, he's not the Christ. I am not the Christ, he says. Well, if John the Baptist is not the Messiah, then who else could it be? Could it be someone else? Could it be uh, Elijah, perhaps? Could it be the prophet? These are just a, a couple of the possible candidates. Now, Elijah, of course, was uh, the prophet, speaking about the prophet Elijah, who was a, a great prophet, prophesied uh, primarily in the northern kingdom during the time of King Ahab. And he, was, he was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind in 2 Kings chapter 2. The Lord, uh, speaking in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so, is, maybe, maybe that's who he's claiming to be. Maybe he's Elijah. The expectation was that if this is the day of the Lord, if the day of the Lord is at hand, and that's a, that's a major theme in the, in the prophets, particularly the minor prophets, if this is the day of the Lord, then, then Elijah must come. But John the Baptist says, I'm not him. I'm not Elijah. 
Later, though, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus does, in fact, connect Elijah to John the Baptist. Now, you might wonder, why, why, is there this, why does there seem to be this discrepancy between what John says? He says, I'm not Elijah. And then later, Jesus says, well, really, he is Elijah. Why the discrepancy? John, Jesus connects John to Elijah. John denies being Elijah. Now, it should be understood that some of the Jews at that time thought that Elijah would literally come back from the dead. He would literally come back. It would actually be Elijah. They understood Malachi chapter 4 to speak of Elijah as being resurrected. Or perhaps he, you know, he was brought out in a whirlwind. Maybe a whirlwind will bring him back. However he comes back, that it would be actually Elijah returning. And John's birth is detailed in other places, so we know that he's not Elijah resurrected. And so John is answering like this. Indeed, he's telling the truth. He's not Elijah. Because he's not literally Elijah. Nevertheless, he has a ministry similar to that of Elijah, which is really what the prophecy was about. He's prophesying like a prophet, like Elijah, He is the precursor that was promised in Micah. John is not literally Elijah, rather he is like Elijah. And so he's not Elijah, he's not Elijah at least in the way that they would understand it. He's he's being honest about that. So the men continue questioning uh, the, the Baptist when they ask him if he was the prophet. If you're not Elijah, you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, maybe you're maybe you're the prophet. Now you might wonder, what is this referencing? What is, or who is, rather, the prophet? Who is the prophet? Well, the prophet refers to a promise given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Which says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking, by the way. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among, from, uh, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the promise is of a prophet like Moses. This is the prophet. A prophet who is considered to be, uh, Moses by the way, was considered to be the greatest of all prophets. And so another prophet like him would arise who would speak the very words of God. This prophet was also an end times figure. The coming of the prophet from God was seen by some as the forerunner to the Messiah. Others, namely the Samaritans, connected the Messiah with the promised prophet. That the the prophet would be the Messiah. However it's conceived, John denies being him as well. He's not Elijah. He is not the prophet. And so... The priests and the Levites press him further. Verse 22, well then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You can almost sense the men's frustration with John at this point. He just keeps, keeps making denials. We have people to answer to. Who are you? What do you have to say about yourself? Well, verse 23. 
Look in your, look in your Bible. Verse 23, provide, John provides an answer. He says this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John replies with the words of Isaiah, another prophecy. Now, John may not have identified himself with any of the expected eschatological figures. And again, he was being honest. He was not Elijah. He's not the prophet. But John was not just another itinerant preacher either. He was a voice, a voice crying out in the wilderness, make the way straight. Now, in Isaiah, the prophecy which John refers to was a call for a a metaphorical improvement of the road system. Level the hills and valleys, straighten the curves, in order to accommodate the return of the covenant people from exile. But the return of the people from their Babylonian captivity itself, even at that time, even in the days of Isaiah, was a picture of the return of the people to the Lord. Isaiah declared that when the Messiah comes, that he would send his messenger. And that messenger was to declare to the people, build the road. Make way for the king. Take down the hills. Fill in the valleys. Make the crooked paths straight. Prepare to meet your king. Your king is coming. The mass returned to the people to Zion in the days of Isaiah then serves as a type, a shadow of the mass return of the people to the Lord. The king has come. The people were to stream to him as those streaming to a mountain from every nation. Love the king had come, right? This is, what, this, is what John, or this is what John is getting at, isn't it? The king has come. They don't know who he is yet. But the king has come. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare, build the road for your king is here. Micah chapter 4 presents a similar eschatological picture of the nations flowing to the Lord. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. John, the baptizer, was the messenger of the Lord. He had come in the ministry of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of the King of Kings. He was calling them to build the road Prepare the way. To prepare the way for the great king, prophet, and priest of God who would, as the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. John himself was but a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, as mentioned earlier, the Sadducees who controlled the Sanhedrin uh, and the delegation which came to meet with John uh, again, was probably probably most of those who came were of the Sadducees. Uh, they were most of most of the priests were of that class. Uh, however, some of those who came were of the Pharisees as well. Even among the priests, there were some who were Pharisees. The Pharisees strictly adhered to the scriptures, uh, to the traditions of Judaism. 
The Sadducees were rather indifferent. Now, up to this point, the Sadducees would have been quite satisfied with John's answers. I mean, they didn't believe this stuff anyway, so, okay, well, that's who you think you are, fine. They would have been fine with that. They didn't believe the Scriptures anyway, but the, but the Pharisees among the delegation, they would not have been quite satisfied. They, they understood what John was getting at there. And so they ask in verse 24, uh, 20, by the way, verse 24, we better understood this way, now those sent from the Pharisees asked. See, some, of the, some of the delegation were actually Pharisees. And so they had further questions to ask. If John is just a voice crying in the wilderness in the vein of Isaiah, but is not the Messiah, nor the prophet, then verse 25, then why is he baptizing? Why are you baptizing then? Why are you performing the rite which has such eschatological overtones? See why the Pharisees would ask such a question, whereas the Sadducees would be fairly indifferent. What gives you the right to do these things based on how we understand the prophecies of Scripture? This is what they're asking. Baptism was a known practice at that time. Typically, it was practiced in the process of converting to Judaism. Among the monastic Qumran community, the practice was done daily as a way of showing their righteousness. In both cases, the convert evidently baptized himself, like a a cleansing ritual. But John, John is actually doing something remarkably different from this. John administered the, first of all, John administered the baptism. He's the one who administered the baptism to the people. And he was also calling the Jews to be baptized as well. So here the Baptist takes the opportunity to bear witness. They were asking on, about the authority which John has to perform the rite that he does. He baptizes with water. But there is one among them whom they do not know. You see, the purpose of John's baptism was to pave the way for someone else. This is actually, this is actually part of that voice crying in the wilderness. Make the way straight. He's preparing the way. Whatever authority John may have in performing these baptismal rites pales to comparison to the one who was, at that time, still unrecognized among the people. The one who has ultimate authority. John mentions the strap of his sandal. He's Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, this is an idiom. This is an expression among the Jews at that time. A disciple of a rabbi, along with learning from him, would attend to his every need. He would run errands for him, go get food, make various arrangements. Uh, You see this among the disciples of Jesus. They they go out and buy food. They made arrangements for the upper room. You know, things of that nature. The one thing that a disciple was never required to do was to take care of his master's shoes. This was a menial task. This is a humiliating task that is left to slaves. Only the slave would have to do something as grotesque as that. Not not the student. Not the disciple. John says, he's not even worthy for that task. 
You see what John's saying, right? He is so low. He is so unworthy that even a slave outranks him. He doesn't even rank high enough to untie the master's shoes. The delegation is asking questions, but John is saying, don't look at me. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Don't look at me. Look at him. Look to him. Look to him. There is someone else who is already among you. You don't even recognize who he is, but he is greater than all of us. This is the promised one. Look to him. Verse 28 says, If these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing them. Here John, uh, the writer, introduces us the geographic place where these things are occurring. Bethany across the Jordan. Now, the best known Bethany is a short distance from Jerusalem on the road to Jericho. Uh, This is the home of some of Jesus' friends, such as Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, John will later distinguish this Bethany in his gospel as the one near Jerusalem. But the Bethany mentioned here in our text, this Bethany across the Jordan, it's not the same one as the Bethany near Jerusalem. That's actually uh, the one across across the Jordan. uh, That is to say, it's on the east side of the Jordan. We don't we don't know exactly where this was. Uh, There are a number of suggestions. Uh, Most likely, it's a place called uh, Batanea, which is not a town or a village, but rather a region. The difference is mostly in spelling, is likely a result of the diversity of spellings allowed in the ancient world. We're we're much more precise in our in our day. But this is the place uh, that John was baptizing. This is the place where Jesus will be, be declared to be the Lamb of God, and where he begins his public ministry. And this will be the place that Jesus retreats to before crossing back over the Jordan to go to Bethany near Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead. So this is, a, this is an important place. Now John includes this geographic note for a reason. This is, this is not just a, a random thing or or uh, you know, just sort of an aside that's of, of little importance. Actually, John includes it for a reason. Jesus was not simply a regional teacher or a regional Messiah. He begins his public ministry in the north at a wedding feast in Canaan of Galilee. His ministry ends the south where he is crucified. And he moves throughout the land of Israel, going to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and even the Transjordan. Jesus is the true Israel. That, that's these little geographic notations. It's it's pointing. Remember, John is trying to press this point about who Jesus is. Right? Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Messiah for the whole nation. So John connects that theme in his gospel by including these little geographic markers. You'll you'll see these throughout uh, the text. The next day after the visit from the delegation, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said in verse 29, so here's here's Jesus coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is coming. He points to him. This is him. Look, look, the Lamb of God. 
As Christians, you and I are very familiar with this designation. And so it's difficult for us to fully comprehend just how truly remarkable this is. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God, was not a usual messianic designation. You know, it's, it's very typical for us. We understand that now. But when John is, when John is saying that, behold the Lamb of God, that, that's incredible. What's even more astounding is that John makes this declaration. But then later, even John will have some doubts himself about exactly who Jesus is. You can, you can look at Matthew chapter 11. What is happening here is a prophetic utterance. When John said that someone was coming who was unrecognized, even he would not be able to recognize him. And yet the Lord gave him in that moment understanding. And he was able to declare, this is him. This is the Lamb of God who has come. This is the one that he is speaking about. Look at verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself do not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now it isn't the case that John didn't know Jesus. It isn't that he didn't know him. He didn't know who he was. He, he wasn't aware of that Jesus is, was the Messiah until that moment. What John knew was that his purpose was to baptize with water so that the promised one of Israel might be revealed to the nation. And to this, John was able to bear witness, starting in verse 32. Now, at some prior time, Jesus had come to John to be baptized. John doesn't tell us this explicitly, but assumes the reader is familiar enough with the story from the other gospel accounts. We can read in Mark chapter 3 that John would have prevented the baptism, saying that Jesus needed to baptize him. But Jesus had said to him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And thus John performed that right. So now John bears witness of what had happened at Jesus' baptism. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. The coming of the Spirit upon Christ like a dove confirmed for John who Jesus was. John was a witness to the anointing of Jesus Christ by the Father with the Holy Spirit. He saw the Spirit descend and remain on Christ. And in so doing this, Christ has authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Christ, as the mediator, was anointed by the Father Thus was qualified to carry out the task of mediating between God and man. Whereas John is not even worthy to untie his sandal strap, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is again confirmed at Jesus' baptism. John here is again reflecting on the creator-creature distinction. John is a small man and God is very big. So John bears witness. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John again underscores how the sight of the Spirit descending and remaining on Jesus is significant. His, his eyes are open to who this is. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God who has come. 
What he didn't understand before, what he was unaware of previously, has now become crystal clear to him. And he's able to boldly and clearly point to Jesus. That's him. This is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God. Who John the Baptist claimed to be was important to those representatives which were sent from Jerusalem to interview him. But who John is was of less importance to himself, less importance than the one he came to point to. Our culture is so obsessed with trying to discover themselves or reinvent themselves that they fail to know the one who created them. Their commitment to autonomy blinds them to their need to know God. So it should come as no surprise to us in this modern age that people don't know who they are. If they don't know God, they can't know who they are. People have always been searching for meaning and significance in life. It's just that this postmodern, this postmodern people have taken it a step further. They have attempted to create their own significance. But beloved congregation, this is just an illusion. Because true knowledge comes from knowing God. This is what uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes learned. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, here's what he had to say after, after he sought all that the world had to offer in terms of wisdom and knowledge. He says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Know God. Fear Him. It is in knowing God that we can truly know ourselves. John came to point the way to the King and to our God who had come. God has taken on flesh. He had come to satisfy all righteousness. He came to save sinners such as you and me. And so who are you? Who are you? If you are a Christian, then you are a blood-bought child of the King who has come. You are in Christ by faith in Him. So, beloved congregation, know Christ Jesus. Only in knowing Him can you rightly know yourself. Follow after Him, for He will never leave you nor forsake you. Beloved, repent of your sin, trust in Jesus Christ, walk in His way. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thank you, thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that the Lamb of God has come. That He revealed Himself. That He took on flesh. That He bore this, our sins so that we can be in relation with You. We're thankful that in knowing You, we can truly know ourselves. We pray, Father, for this community. That we might be, as John the Baptist, those who point to the Savior who in humility see ourselves for who we really are and are able to point people to the hope that's found in our Savior, in our God. 
Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.